HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. New American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some. Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. I'm Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Guys. Gentlemen. Hey, I, you know what? I did something really cool over the weekend. I know it was Memorial Day weekend, but um, oh, yeah. went to Tahoe. But on the way to Tahoe, stopped in a little town called Nevada City. And it's in the middle of gold country. And this place is like, it's a small town. It's like, it's basically like a movie set, you know? And uh, it's totally, you guys would dig it. Um, stayed at a place called the National Exchange Hotel. They've got a great little cocktail bar in the lobby. Um, took some pictures. I'll send to you. Um, and then there's another bar called Golden Era that, holy shit, it was just so much fun. Um, big bar. Uh, huge backyard with live music. Uh, multiple bars. There's one outside, one that big long one inside. And DJ inside, li- live music outside. It was just like, a, you forget, like, you know, living in, like, <laughs> in New York and San Francisco. That other places have space. You know, they actually have space to <laughs> yeah. do things. Yeah, I do forget that. Yeah, it's, but it's a thing. It's a thing that people have, you know, anywhere else besides where we live. Um, but it was a it was a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, if you guys are ever out here sometime, we should, should pop over there. Uh, but I want to hear, I mean, I know that Souther's probably, since last week, he's opened like at least 45 bars. Um, Sounds about but, right, yeah. But yeah, what did you guys do for Memorial Day weekend? Well, first of all, I, I have a question about the aesthetic of this place, because I think you and I might've spent our Memorial day weekends at a fairly, you know, at, at perhaps spiritual cousins of one another. When you tell me about the, what is it? The great exchange hotel. Is that what it was called? The national exchange. And it's very, it's like, you know, it was built, you know, like 150 years ago, uh, you know, during, you know, kind of, it's a, it's a gold rush era town. It's, you know, it's what, it's what this place is, Nevada city. And so it's very much what you'd expect. Very old school, like Brunswick Bar. Um, oh hell yeah! Just you know, all the the kind of wild, like pattern, like kind of damask wallpapers, and uh, you know, just lots of really cool wood details. Yeah, I mean, is that is that aligning with yours? Mostly, I, I was mostly wondering how many tax on a scale of like one to insane, how many taxidermied animals you know what? Around. <laughs> I, surprisingly, not very many. Not very many. Huh. Okay, maybe maybe we didn't spend our our weekends in similar places because I went to a wedding on Long Island. That's not I was going to say that's not the weird part. That's not the only weird part. But it was at a uh, a sportsman's club, aka uh, you know, a hunting and gun club that's been around for like 150 years. So you walk in there and there's just animal heads everywhere, which is which is kind of, you know, it's a it's a little uh, off-putting in a sort of a cult kind of way, but also 
really funny and hilarious because there's a lot of really amazing sort of, you know, mid-century American nature artwork, including this one really fantastic painting of the exact moment this one hunter, you know, like he's got like the pith helmet and he's got like the Boy Scout socks on, the exact moment he's watching a water buffalo just absolutely puncture his buddy's lung. Like this water buffalo is like <laughs> lifting this other guy up off the ground. His feet are in the air. And the first guy is standing there staring at it. And I love that the artist could have very easily painted this look of sort of steely determination on this guy's face. Like, not today. But instead, if you look at it, he's like one second away from just absolutely crapping his pants and running the other way. Like it's <laughs> it's it's a it's a phenomenally weird spot. But um I also actually got to do a little bit of bartending while I was there. Uh, surprised me, but at 11 p.m., uh, the bartenders of the open bar were like, okay, see ya. And I was like, what What do you mean, see ya? And they're like, yeah, we're only contracted for X number of hours. We're done. So uh, y'all can just help yourselves, I guess. And I was like, wait, seriously? He's like, yeah, we still got a bunch of tequila, a bunch of rum back there. A shitload of Malort. Was anyone there from Chicago? <laughs> no. But the groom just really, really likes stuff that that causes people pain, I guess. So he was just like, yeah, just go back there and help yourself. So uh, I sort of ran a, a bar that only served Negronis for a little while uh, because that was Good all that concept, I had. The cognitive concept, com- I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was going for, you know, I had this great idea of a bar that only does stirred bitter drinks. <laughs> yeah, solid uh, concept. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy easy, actually. I don't have to bother shaking anything. It's I don't know why no one's done this before. But um, perhaps got into a little bit of trouble uh, just because there was a lot of booze to go through and no supervision of people that hadn't been drinking all day. Mm. So, um, yeah, good, good. All in all, a fairly baseline weekend out on Eastern Long Island, I will say. Yeah, little right did on. you know, you, you weren't just invited. You were invited to come work. <laughs> oh, I was a groomsman. I knew I was coming there to work. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Right. You knew your role going in. Nice. Exactly. I just thought that by that point, I'd be able to just like completely check out and turn into a monster. But no, I had, I still had a little bit more left to give. Greg, yeah. you are in, like, I feel like you are as frequently a groomsman, like totally aligned with how many bars Souther opens. <laughs> and, like every time he opens a bar, you're in someone's wedding party. Uh, it's true. It, it does seem to line up that way. I flew back uh, red eye yesterday from LA. We are officially open tonight at the new spot in LA. It's called Avant Garden Bistro. It is the larger version of Avant Garden here in New York City, uh, with a, with a bar that's only doing stirred cocktails. Wow! No, we're doing. Uh, um, it's just we only have a beer and wine license, so all the cocktails are built on mostly on fortified wines. Um, Great. Uh, that I'm doing, you know, some different infusions with and shaking them up and making them nice. That's, you know, yeah. there's a lot you can do with that kind of program. I did oh, it. We I had a, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Frankie Spintino, we used to have one on Clinton street, 17 Clinton street over by you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, we only had a beer and wine license. And so I started uh, d- doing just like, I had a whole sherry cocktail list because we did, mm-hmm. we changed the concept for the last six months that that place was open. Um, and it was more of a Spanish vibe. So it made sense to do sherry cocktails, but Man, started digging into it, and you know this is going back. I think the only sherries we could really get were like the loose style line, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was amazing to see how much you could do with very little. And oh man, I, I think honestly, I went into it feeling a, a bit challenged, maybe maybe even you know preliminarily defeated myself. And then as the pressure got on, and I had to create the program, I understood that like, oh, it's a restaurant. We're definitely serving a lot of food. And what goes better with food than wine, honestly, right. like, you know, cocktails and, and food is, is harder than right. wine-based sure cocktails and food. So suddenly I realized what a kind of a, I don't, I'm not going to say like it advantage. turned into something easy, but it certainly turned into something yeah. way less difficult than I made it out to be in my mind. Cool. So it's Well, congrats, cool. man. Yeah. yeah. Every time a bell rings, Souther opens a bar and another one of my <laughs> friends gets married. <laughs> <laughs> and I buy a hat. Well, speaking of, speaking of ringing bells, since we have no segue here, who's in the who's in the who's in the studio with us today, Greg? We got Jelani Johnson here in the studio with us, who is a distiller, bartender, rum fan, and all around man about town. Jelani, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, guys. How you doing today? 
Awesome, Kick man. Ass. Really glad to have you on with us again. You've been on in yeah. the past. You were here uh, uh, when we were live in studio. I think, if I'm correct, I don't know, Damon, were you listening before we got on the air? There were 11 people in the room when the Tiki Mafia Arc was on. <laughs> was it was one of them. <laughs> yeah, the Tiki Mafia Arc. Uh, yeah. That, the studio almost capsized. From, <laughs> you know, I, I can't remember the how many bottles of rum for sure. Yeah, we, we drink a lot of rum. I think bottles, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we drank yeah. two full bottles of sparkling wine and a bottle of rum among 11 of us in 45 minutes. So well, yeah, we, sounds about we, right. Sounds about right. We, we, Actually, we I'm kind of disappointed. Passing bottles around. Passing bottles around. Nice. Well, welcome back, Johnny. Yeah, it's Dude, been I, a while since then. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. I think that was like maybe five years ago or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, great to have you back in the studio, man. You've done a lot. You've always been a guy who takes on a lot of work i mean i like i i was thinking about this i was like man did we ever work together and we kind of and i'm like air quoting my air quotes like we've just (laughs) kind of barely worked together we've done like events and things like that before but like do you remember the um the ludlow hotel oh my god yeah you were helping out doing like um i think you were doing like I was like bartending there like one night a week for like a yeah, month I was doing prep there. <laughs> and you were doing prep. So we kind of worked together. We never worked like a I shift know. together, but, but I'm proud we to say that we, bar together. yeah, yeah. We, we uh, drank it many. We've, we sure have done that. But since then, I mean, I mean, even before then, I mean, you're at Clover club for a very long time. That's kind of where you cut your teeth, correct? Yeah. Um, I ended my time there at, uh, well, I actually, <laughs> I ended my time there thinking that I would go into full-time distilling, but then the pandemic happened. Uh, yeah. So what happened was uh, I wound up leaving for a bit, taking a summer off to just not work and blow through my savings. But then when the pandemic <laughs> yeah. hit, I wound up going back to Clover Club. And uh, at the end of it all, I was I, I did the math and I had been there for eight years. Wow. That's a hell of a run, man. Yeah, that's, you know, yeah. I think that that's super uncommon in, in our field. I think people, you know, especially in New York around, City, you know, they pop around, you have multiple jobs at all at any given time and you just pop around. So it's really, really says something for stamina to stand behind the same bar for eight years. And what a bar to stand behind. Talk about your time at the Clover Club. Uh, well, I mean, I know it is uncommon. I feel like there's so many of mercenary bartenders out there that just jump from place to place. But Really, all anybody's looking for is just a nice home to rest your head and call your own. And thankfully, Clover Club was that for me. I started off there as a food runner. Um, I was just getting into cocktails. I came from a little... Uh, I was actually working at um, a now-closed leg of Fornino, which went on to expand and is now everywhere. So I started off at Fornino, uh, just doing everything. Uh, got into cocktails heard about the Clover Club and all the amazing establishments around town that I hadn't seen yet. I was like 22 at the time. Uh, I went into Clover Club, asked for a job, uh, started food running there, and then just kind of fell in love with the program and fell in love with the community and everyone that was there. And, uh, you know, I just kept on working my way up, doing every job in the place, getting really close with Julie and Tom and Sue and all the great people that are there. And, uh, you know, eight years just kind of flew by uh, between and uh, even on my last day, I still held on to my original bar back shift. I bar back there Tuesdays for the majority of the time that I was there. And that was like my favorite part. That's awesome, man. I love that. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, you didn't have like a private party in the back room or anything like that. You, you kind of went full circle back to, your bar backing position for your last shift. That's really cool, man. Yeah, exactly. I always, you know, so at, at Grand Army, we have this setup where it's like we we had bar backs when we, when we first opened, and then we realized that the bar backs quickly became like just amazing bartenders. So we had this team, and we still do this today. We We have a kind of a floater bar support position, but it's, it's everyone's a bartender. Like that's the whole point of working there is like that, you know, to, to expand your knowledge and to kind of build yourself up to be a bartender. That's what a lot of barbacks kind of get into it for, but everyone would take like on a Friday, Saturday night, you'd have two bartenders, two, two people as bartenders. I'm air quoting again, 
this really works well on radio. I'm finding out. Um, but then, <laughs> then you'd have like a third bartender who would work like the essentially support slash bar back shift. I loved working that shift, man. It, that, like, you know, like Best. it gave me, I hate to say this cause I love talking to guests and in the social part of bartending. <laughs> Go ahead, it's it. like, it is. it's kind of nice to have a break from that and just like, keep your head down and like polish glassware and like refill syrups and juices and like bang out ice and, you know, all, all the bar backy stuff. Uh, you know, it's kind of nice to, uh, just kind of like sh- kind of switch roles a little bit. And so to me, it's like, I don't think that there's any, like, I know that, you know, we're all one team, one dream, right? Like to me, th- it's really, I, I worked some shifts where I would shuck oysters for happy hour and be an oyster shucker, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like you kind of like, that's kind of, if I'm hearing this correctly, and I know from talking to you in the past, like, it's kind of like your kind of almost like mantra in a way. It's like, everyone should know how to do everything. And it only makes you a better bartender if you know what the other roles are doing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really just, I mean, it's, some of the bartenders that I've worked with that I don't get along with throughout my career, the ones who come into a place, think they're hot shit and say, you know, I'm exclusively a bartender. That's why yeah, I, I won't do that. Bartender. I deal with the people. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't do that. It's not my job. Yeah. But also I apologize for the noises of the distillery around me. I'm still sitting at. No, I love it. It's right texture. Now. So yeah. every now and then you're going to hear <laughs> something bang or uh, <laughs> something good. screech. So. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It really, uh, it just steeping yourself in everything is the best way to be good at, like, at least kind of good at most things. And it goes back to something that, you know, uh, back to the Tiki Mafia days. Uh, Brian Miller was the one that said something to me that stuck with me forever. And it's kind of like words I live by is that just be a sponge, no matter where you go, try to learn something from everyone. Nothing is beneath you. So, you know, in that sense, you know, if you're just a bartender and you say, I only shake the drinks, what happens if you're running solo and your keg kicks and you don't know how to change a keg? I've seen bartenders that don't know how to change a keg. And it's just mind blowing to me. You need to know how a bar works in order to be a proficient player at a bar. And that's how I've, that's my entire mentality behind it. Yeah. I have a handwritten sort of um, employee onboarding thing that I give to all my bartenders. And it's, uh, the first line of that is clean as you go. And the second line sure. is there's an, there's a science to absolutely everything behind the bar. Learn them all, master a few, start with hospitality. And then it goes on for about another hundred sentences like that. And then the last <laughs> one is, and the, and the very last one is, and always clean as you go. You know? So yeah. I think, um, I think that's the mentality right from the top is that you have to, you have to realize that there is a way and a science, uh, you know, about every aspect of what we do behind the bar. And, you don't have to master them all, but you need to, to learn them all and master a few, master a few of them and be great at those few, but, but you have to know them all. You have to have a, at least like an explanation or a story about every single thing, every bottle, yep, every syrup, every ingredient, every tool, like, you know, th- like every to time me, you've had to clean puke off the floor, every yeah, time you've had to yeah, every, troubleshoot and fix shit, every time you've had to, uh, it also yeah. gets you out yeah, of a, some chest. sticky situations. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> like if, if you, uh, if you get caught with like a, a customer that's talking your, your ears off and you're like slammed, and you've got a bunch of tickets or a bunch of people like waving twenties or hunt twenties. <laughs> Remember those days, hundreds in your face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah but uh, inflation, man, like if you, if someone asks you a question 20s. about you know, like that one bottle behind the bar, it's like, you got to have like a quick answer. And so you got to, yeah, you do have to soak up everything. And Brian Miller is a great person to learn that from because that guy is very well traveled and, uh, and definitely has a story about everything behind the bar and, and beyond. So that's very cool. When you got into, I know that you're really speaking of Brian Miller and the Tiki Mafia. You're, you are a like very like when I think about your cocktails, I think Tiki. That's like was that like your first like real love when you got into cocktails, or did you kind of get into classics and kind of move down the timeline, or was that kind of like the the first first thing that got you into it? Well, it's funny because uh, I started off at. Clover Club, which is very classics driven, but Julie herself comes from a background of doing tropical drinks, Lanikai, and just you know being a Hawaiian person and just being steeped in this culture of you know uh, tropical drinks. So at Clover Club, I learned the basics, fundamentals of classics, but it was kind of through the lens of rum and tiki 
so what I did was I kind of wound up pigeonholing myself into the category of rum and tiki drinks. It's just what I fell in love with. It was the most fun for me. Uh, and I got into that through Brian and Brian Aloya, corporal captain and Julie herself. And uh, I kind of just took a hard pivot into the world of tiki. And then through that, uh, I was able to really just like learn so much about the way that labor profiles work and uh, like really just make really more intricate flavors. Uh, but it was always kind of based in the world of classics. Um, so then what happened after that? Sorry, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, but then after that, uh, what happened after Clover was um, my time at Katie Palmer, which was another uh, like hardcore dive into classics once again. So I kind of been ping-ponging back and forth between rum and tiki and classic classics throughout my entire cocktail career. Uh, and it's been really fun. It's been really rewarding to be able to do both because, you know, there's bartenders and people who only do one or only do the other. And it's good to keep yourself diverse in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really cool when you when you went to Gage and Tolner because that place is, first of all, it's stunning. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful old bar. And um, it's, but it's got both of, your things, right? It's got Gage and Tolner, which is your very like classic kind of cocktail drive. And then you go upstairs to the sunken Harbor club and that's definitely more like tropical driven. So it was like, Hey, this is kind of like, this is like Jelani's resume in one building, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Um, and then of course you started uh, doing a little bit of distilling with Oni's rum. Um, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come back and keep talking about a bit of Gage and Toller's, Sunken Harbor Club, and and then getting into distilling with Jelani. Uh, so stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. DiageoBarAcademy.com focuses on representing the global bar community with diverse content created by experts and enthusiasts from around the world. Championing the passions of bartenders, upskilling those new to the industry, and supporting owners and operators to solve problems they face in their bars and restaurants. So join the community of Diageo Bar Academy today. You've heard Greg, Damon, and I talk about Diageo Bar Academy on our podcast for some time now. Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. That's absolutely right, Souther. Whether you're a experienced bartender looking for new inspiration and trends, or you're just starting out, Diageo Bar Academy online courses offer real-life skills to help you grow your career. And they're always free and interactive, and even some of the advanced e-learning courses take less than 30 minutes to complete. There's quizzes and activities and e-learning courses on everything from skills and techniques, basics of spirit categories, improving guest experiences, serving responsibly, creating your own personal brand, and a lot more than that. Yeah, once again, it's free and it's on demand, so do it when you have time. All you need is access to a computer. Visit DiageoBarAcademy.com to build your skills with Diageo Bar Academy e-learning and master classes. That's D-I-A-G-E-O BarAcademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Jelani's in the studio today. Again, uh, it's been about five years, but today it's just Jelani. It's not the Tiki Mafia. And this guy is a, like a wealth of stories and, and experience and you know one thing i wanted to talk to you about um honestly we don't we talk a lot about like cocktails and spirits and wines and bars but like we don't really talk a lot on this show about beer or not often enough um obviously there's uh a beer show on heritage radio network uh jimmy carboni show um beer sessions but like we we 
rarely get to talk about beer, but I love beer. I know that Greg loves beer. Uh, oh, and, yes. And you actually, way back in the day, I remember like hanging out with you outside of work. We would hang out at uh, Tiki Adam's house, uh, Adam Colesar, Tiki Adam, as he's known in the circles. Um, and you would bring over like home brews and things you were working on. Even when you started uh, distilling uh, yeah. the Noble Project, you would bring over certain kind of experimental things. Like, But I want to talk about the, the home brewing thing because distillation is science, right? It, you know, it's, it's, you're separating with heat, you're separating the alcohol from the water. That's basically what it is. That's distillation. But you've got to get to that point where you have something to distill. You either have to ferment the cider or the wine. And in whiskey's case, you've got to ferment grain into beer. And so tell us a little bit about that ride. I mean, like, I know that that was something that, especially Tiki Adams place is also not just a place where you'd have like a quarterly Tiki party. You had like a quarterly beer night. And so we, we yeah. ended up hanging out those a lot. And uh, how'd you get into that, man? Uh, well, in terms of beer brewing, it's actually uh, something that I just kind of stumbled upon when I was 19. Uh, we went to a, uh, a flea market, the Brooklyn flea. And we saw that they had, so Brooklyn homebrew was one of like the first companies to create and curate these like homebrew kits. And now they're everywhere. You can just get one and make one gallon of beer. You can make a couple bottles of beer, you can make the five gallon carboys. Uh, but me and my buddy, Jared, went and put down 50 bucks between the two of us to buy a homebrew kit. Cause we were thinking, you know, it's always hard to get beer <laughs> if when you're we 19. make our own beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're like, we'll try to make our own beer. It seems easy. The guys really chatted us up, let us know that it's a beautiful thing to do. We bought a couple books and a kit and the rest was kind of history. We followed the recipe to the tea. We made a Belgian triple because that's nice. like the most alcoholic <laughs> beer that we saw in the book that we could make. So we made this, you know, 10% ABV beer that actually tasted really good. And we gave it to all our friends for Christmas and we drank a shit ton of it and it was just fantastic. And then from there we had this initial kit and our friends were really into it. We just kind of rolled with it. And uh, that was just how I fell into home brewing. And then from there, I just saw the depth to which you can go with this. And what really kind of solidified my love of home brewing was the, the, the second beer that I tried to make was a, total mess i tried to make a uh, uh a chocolate milk stout and i got really ambitious i kegged it i force carbonated it i made it with all these i tried to make the abv just through the roof again <laughs> and i had all my friends over at my house we were 19 still at my parents house in the basement and we drank this entire pony keg of chocolate milk stout and the next day we were all so sick. I don't know what went wrong, <laughs> but the beer was, the beer was delicious, <laughs> but we were just, you know, shitting foam the next day. It was a mess. <laughs> and, you know, multiple mishaps later, I was like, okay, this is something that I have to actually read about and pay attention to and kind of do my homework on to get good at, make sure I'm not poisoning my friends and spilling five gallons of beer on my parents floor at a time. Yeah. No it's mass suicide. Like yeah, they're like, all right, you have to move out now since you've ruined the ground floor. Uh, good luck finding an apartment. Goodbye. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was just kind of my foray into homebrewing, and I've gotten pretty good at it over the years. Where you know, I have a fundamental idea of how to make a beer taste like a classic style, and it's just so rewarding being able to drink a beer that you've made while you're making a new batch of beer and connecting with people, and you, know, you can put great labels on it, give it to friends. It just feels so intimate. And is really just what got me into producing alcohol. But then you're right. It's a huge leap from that into distilling because there's only but so many distilleries around mm -hmm. and there's but so many jobs going around, you know, it doesn't take that many people to run a distillery, but it's a whole nother world of know-how. And it's just, it, it, it fascinated me. I fell in love with the production of alcohol kind of simultaneously while I was in the cocktail world. Yeah. How do you make, how do you make that transition from, you know, home brewing, which, which, you know, we've talked a few times about how like beer just happens, right? Beer will happen. You have to do stuff to make uh, you know, hard alcohol. So how do you transition from, from that thing that, you know, everyone's allowed to do in their home by, you know, by law, but by law, we're not allowed to distill at home. How do you make that leap? 
well, you know, I've actually, I've never done any home distilling, but what got me into it was, um, it was actually like a chance encounter at Clover Club. Um, Bridget Fertile, the, uh, the owner of um, the Noble Experiment that produces Oni's rum, uh, came in uh, right at the height of me being in a tiki. And I had never heard of this distillery before. She was making rum in Bushwick, uh, like by herself, apparently, and was selling bottles out of her purse. So yeah. I was like, I remember those days. fascinated yeah. by this woman. Yeah, it was nuts. And then uh, I was like, okay, I need to obviously get in with Bridget. And uh, I asked her for her card. I went to the distillery in Bushwick, literally knocked on the door and was like, hey, like I'm, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Can I have a job? And immediately she was like, no, I'm not really hiring anyone. She had her, uh, her team of two other ladies that helped her run it. Uh, uh, Leslie was her number two at the time that she brought on Selena, who's now my uh, supervisor and my boss at Great Jones. Um, but she was like, yeah, no, you, you don't get a job. This is like women only and we're kicking ass. <laughs> yeah. But then after a while, she, uh, you know, she started to expand and she started to uh, make kind of forays into uh, different circles. And I kind of kept on following her until she let me into that circle. And she gave me a part-time job making Oni's rum when she was expanding. Uh, so then when she expanded, she brought me on two days a week to watch how this still is run. And I just kind of watched and learned and kept showing up and doing it until I got to the point that I felt comfortable running that still. And running a still is just like learning a cocktail program. You know, you have to learn where all the pieces are to make the room work. Uh, and then it all just starts to fit together. And I learned that system. I learned how to make the rum. I learned the recipe. And I was working there part-time producing rum for a few years. And also the Dak Shack, right? You're, there was a... And the Dak Shack, yeah. Me and Brian Miller both worked shifts there for a while. The tasting room, she basically tried to turn the tasting room into its own kind of bar entity that would bring the rum community together and drink over, over daiquiris. And so that was cool. a really awesome experience too, but it was on this like industrial block. It didn't really invite that much foot traffic. So, you know, we didn't, it didn't blow up the way we wanted it to, but it was still awesome just being there, shaking daiquiris right next to the still that makes it. That's so cool, man. I remember those days. Like, you know, I was just thinking about this too. Like, I know that now you're, uh, you're distilling at Great Jones and you're at uh, the Noble Project, but then all with the home brewing. So, I've always wondered this, like, and there's not too many people who are doing what you do, right? Who like come from a cocktail background that got into brewing and distillation. Does it make your, like, when you think about cocktails, do you think about them differently now because of the experience you have, like kind of behind the curtain with knowing how the base products are actually made? You know, does that make any sense? Uh, Yeah, I, it does. And I, I got to say that I, I do, um, but not in an overarching way. I still really look at cocktails in terms of classics and templates yeah. that are just tried and true. I guess what I'm saying but, is like when I was with Brooklyn gin, whenever we would make batches of gin, I would, I started making me think about that gin in a different way because of the botanicals and the citrus peels that, that are in it. So whenever I would go to make a cocktail with it, like create a new one or even work on a classic with it, I start, I like, before I even put the liquid in the, in the mixing glass or the shaker, I was already thinking about proportions slightly differently because. Oh, of, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you when you have the opportunity to go, I mean, there's that blurb on the back of every bottle that says what the flavors should taste like, and you know your general list of these are the flavors that'll work well with it. But when you go from making, when you go from the raw ingredients that make the spirit to having it in the bottle, you really kind of are more intimately in touch with it, and you know exactly how it's going to work with different ingredients whether certain flavors aren't going to work or not, uh, it really does give you a much better sense of how to make cocktails with it. So, you know, for example, like working here at Craig Jones, just knowing the raw ingredients that go into it, knowing the flavor components of the corn that we're using, 
really steers me in different directions than any other whiskey that I would be using. Um, It's really, and it's hard to really know a spirit like that because not many people have the opportunity to go and take something from scratch that way. Right. Uh, Bartenders only have what the brands give them to work with, you know, Tim uses these botanicals, so you're going to use the botanicals like in your syrups and whatnot. Yeah. When you really get to pull back the curtain and go from scratch, it's really kind of just, it blew my mind just how much deeper there is to go in terms of going from spirits production to the end user sitting on that cocktail. Yeah. There's, there's always so much more to learn, right? Oh my God, there always is, especially when you're playing both fields of production yeah. and cocktails. It's, yeah. It's Shani, a wide, wide Shani world. gets around. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, man, I love that. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's fun to to have the background as a mixologist and then go into the distillery and be like, all right, cool. Well, I know from my experience that, like, this might be too much lavender in this gin or, you know, this might be, like, this chocolate milk stout that almost killed my whole friend circle um, <laughs> might be better if I distill it into some sort of like crazy weird whiskey you know, who knows you know just from like the scientific level but I don't know to me it's all just really fascinating which is, which is why we've been doing this show for 11 years um, there's always more to yeah. learn every week you know and there's always more to talk there's about always yeah. more bars for Southern to open and, yeah. and weddings <laughs> for Greg to attend um, but I want to talk to you a little, I think Southern was mentioning on the break how um, kind of going back to to Clover Club, and what was that, that you were saying, Southern? You you had I, I was curious. You know, uh, I don't think we touched on it too hard, but you know, when you were you said you were at a, a, a small sort of cocktail bar, and then you got a job at Clover Club as a food runner. I was just curious if that was just the job you got to get in there because you knew it was a great place and you were going to really you know excel there, or if you just were like, oh, it's a job, and, and I, I'm going to take this job. You know, did you have a, a, any? sort of inkling that you were stepping into a place that was probably going to propel you forward if you stuck it out. Well, I really didn't have, I actually, when I started at Clover club, I actually thought I was hot shit. You know, I came from Fornino and was bartending there and I knew how to make an old fashioned and I had like tasted Sazerac's and I was like, I, I thought that I was this like big time bartender already because I knew how to make a couple classics in a setting where it was really just uh, very basic stuff. Uh, so what happened at Fornino was they just, they closed down, didn't let any of the employees know, closed down in the worst way and just kind of left us flapping in the wind. So I went down to Smith street and I wound up at uh, the Kittery down there, the like lobster joint. And all I wanted to do there was work at the bar outside and just, you know, serve up bay breezes and four beers outside of that bar. But uh, it was like they had one bartender and they were like, there's no way that you're going to be bartending here. So like, get that out of your head. So I was like, I just want to go back to bartending. So I saw Clover Club as an opportunity. But then when I went in there for, I, I was thinking that maybe I could yeah, take that leap from getting my foot in the door to being a bartender. But to be honest, man, I went in to train as a food runner and the first food runner shift was probably the most stressful training i'd ever done i was like i am way out of my league there's so much food here there's so much to learn you know you're a single food runner running to every table in the joint and it's two rooms full of people and i was like man i am just out of my depth here like i i thought to myself that i'll i'll never get in the door here i just don't have what it takes and as a food runner too, i, I could see that being daunting right? though because it's like clever club's food just by the way like it's excellent um for those who don't know, it's really awesome. But yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of food, and I know Souther could speak to this as well. That is not if you're at Fornino, you know, you're you're we're talking kind of classic Italian and, pizzas and yeah, pastas. like pizzas and pastas, which you know we grew up eating. You know, you know, and, and especially in New York City, for you know, like that's like that's it's ingrained in us, right? But then, like when you start talking about oysters and caviar and steak tartare and things like that that are like you actually like the people who order those foods they they want to know like 
they want background information on like the, the caveat. There's so much information that the, goes into it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I can see, especially if you've never really experienced that kind of food before, like it, you can be like, like somebody starts asking you like, why, like how can you eat raw beef? Like, like in steak tartare, like. Oh, my, my mind was blown. It was, yeah. it was my first time seeing, and you know, I was, I was still early twenties too. So, right. You know, yeah. just seeing the menu for the first time, it was daunting. I honestly was about to turn down the job because I didn't think that I was up to the task. Of running food at Clover Club. What but, what, you know, luckily, what happened in your person, young mind at that time to say, you know what, fucking, I'm going to stick it out? Well, it was actually it was a chance encounter. You know, it was um, I'm I'm from New York, and mm-hmm. I know I feel like I run into someone from high school. I've run into someone that I went to high school with every single day. <laughs> so the person that got me the job at Clover Club was somebody that I went to high school with, and she was like, "It's not that bad. Just give it a shot. Quit being a pussy. Like you can do this." if I can do this. So I said, yes, I stuck it out and the rest is kind of history. I just, you know, I got in the right <laughs> opportunity at the right time. And, uh, you know, slowly, but I, I made a ton of mistakes in the beginning. It was me coming from pizzas and pastas to, like you said, steak tartare and oysters and learning about cocktails and having to interact with it's a like, totally different it's clientele. A lot. Yeah. It's a lot, but you know, as soon as you take that, it's, it's taking a plunge. You're taking a jump into the deep end and chances are you're not going to sink because you're not going to hire anybody that's going to sink and ruin the night for everyone. Yeah. I was just going to say so that they're going to you know, help you swim. That's also like, I will say this, like it's a testament to Julie and Sue and, you know, Tom, like Julie to me is, I mean, she's, she's been a mentor forever. Julie Reiner is like one of the best and, and she's got, she's a badass first of all, but then she's also like, if you show, I feel like with her, like if you show initiative yep. and, and the passion for it, like she's not going to let you fail. Yeah. She spots talent and, and raises it up. That's, that's, that's the hallmark of a great mentor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And she definitely was everyone at Clover Club was a mentor for sure. And definitely put me where I was and where I am going and where I've been. So it all started there. Yeah, man. Amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about Gage and Toller, um, where, where I've yet to go, but it's gorgeous. Every photo I see, I'm just blown away. Robert Simonson goes there a bunch and posts a lot of stuff on it. Oh Instagram. yeah, he was like our first jealous. regular. <laughs> I'm jealous every time I see it. I was like, "Do you have a standing reservation there? What the hell, man?" I think he um, does. Essentially, and then um, <laughs> no, no, and, no. They just know me here. Yeah, right. And then, and then the the Sunken Harbor Club as well. I, like, I, I I need to get to those places. Yeah, the, well, the Sunken Harbor Club, I definitely wasn't as involved in. Uh, I helped with some of the cocktail development in the early days, but I was very much just focused on Agent Tolner. And uh, Sinjin Frizzell brought me on as uh, the opening head bartender there. And we went through the list of old classics that were on the... The only cocktails that are on that list were on the original Agent Tolner menu uh, throughout the decades. And Agent Tolner originally opened in 1892. So there's decades and decades of classic cocktail menus that we were able to kind of mine and take esoteric classics uh, from. But for the most part, it was very much a focus on uh, a kick-ass martini menu, great stir drink program, and just the, you know long, refreshing drinks and you know, just classics that really complement steak fare uh, mm-hmm. in the classic setting. And it was just so much fun working in that space and working with those people. And it was really just like, it, it was excellent being there and training the team and Damon, the same, you were saying like everyone is responsible for everything. Uh, everyone knows the system in and out. The food is great. The cocktails are fantastic. It's just a really, really excellent place to eat and drink. And I'm so happy with the work I did there. It's I honestly like, man, I, it's so beautiful that I like kind of cried a little bit when I first walked in. <laughs> no, I'm you know, that happened a lot, actually. Like people, people would come in and, you know, the place had been closed for upwards of like 15, I think it was like 15 years. The place was closed and it just turned into this shell of its old, old self, but the interior is landmark. So right. as soon as we took away all the false walls and restored it back to its former beauty, people would walk in. And even before we were open, we had to like, it was a regular thing. People would walk in start to cry about the memories they had there. Like, you know, my, mm. my parents had their anniversary here. I got married here. Like everyone has these deep and lasting memories about the place. And it just, it sticks. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. It's such a rare story too. You know, like actually my partners and I, 
in Grand Army, we were offered that space, but we had just opened Grand Army, so we had no money. And uh, we didn't know if we were going to have any money. Uh, you know, it was too early on to know. But um, we got to peek in there and, you know, behind the false walls. For those who don't know, it, it was like a cell phone store or something like that. And they had put yeah, a false it wall. Like a, yeah. And so... Um, an everything store. <laughs> but everything was still intact in there. And, like, it was, it was, it was moving for me back then to see it like it's just a time capsule. Like what a crazy, like diving a sunken ship or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, then seeing it in its full glory, it's just like, Oh my God, it's so moving. Like who gets the opportunity to find a time capsule like that and restore it and open it and have it being a functioning living, breathing space again. You know, that's, that's that never happens. It's very, yeah. very, rare. yeah, it's really, and, and, you know, it was kind of the, the timing of the, the timing really worked out for us as well because we were opening it up full steam ahead. Uh, we were slated to open on March 15th, 2020. Yeah, I, right. yeah, I it was supposed was to be story. our grand opening day. And we put so much work into getting this place set up and ready to go on that day. We had done a week of friends and family. Slowly the walls were kind of closing in. We saw other bars closing. But we were in our own little bubble and we were going to open up to full capacity and kind of run with it but then COVID happening really forced us to take a step back and open it slowly from the ground up mm. rather than hit it with everything and kind of see how it goes and I think that um, I think that it would be not as good if we had opened it up the first time around that way we had a lot more time to kind of iron everything out sure make sure everything was perfect pay attention to every little detail we basically were given a free year to make sure that we opened it up and did it absolutely right and then the day that we actually opened uh was it uh march or april it was 2021 i forget which month but you know we opened at 50 percent, and it's still just the place is huge there were so many people in there it felt overwhelming we were like are we allowed to do this right. like covid's still happening we're open at 50 percent, and then now, now we're open at uh hundred percent, but I just, I think that it was really just a fairy tale story of getting the place open and making it as good as it is. So awesome. Yeah. And it's really great that it happened. And then, you know, we're coming to a close on our time here, uh, but def- definitely want to at least touch on what you're doing now. Um, you're now the distiller. Are you, what's your, is your title head distiller? No, no, I am uh, not the head distiller. The head, <laughs> head distiller is upstairs doing TTP paperwork right now. Nice. But uh, I am one of the operators here at uh, the distillery. So we're uh, I'm here at Great Jones Distillery, and it's uh, it's 686 Broadway. It's this huge, immaculate corner building on Broadway, and we're making bourbon here. And it's so awesome. The first legal whiskey distillery in Manhattan since Prohibition. It's uh, just immaculate space. We have a 500 gallon. Vendome copper pot still attached to two massive columns, and we're producing some really good spirit here. Um, and it's great because we're, um, it was a good pivot from Oni's into this uh, because we uh, were affiliated with the same parent company, and we're actually uh, we're doing everything on a farm distiller's license. And I don't know if uh, your listeners know what a farm distillery is, but there's a ton of them throughout the state. Uh, and there's a ton of uh, tax incentives and uh, breaks to use grains and materials that are grown in New York. So, so long as your mash bill of what you're distilling contains at least 75% uh, stuff that is grown in New York, you can distill on a farm distillery license. Yeah, didn't so it used to be here? Is, uh, wasn't it like uh, within a certain radius? Or have they expanded that? I feel like they start like when Ralph Lorenzo opened Tuttletown, I think it was like something like within yeah. a 30 mile radius. And I think they since have expanded that to essentially. The oh whole state. yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's constantly kind of flowing and changing and yeah. we have, you know, different designations for That's so cool. your empire rise. And there's, uh, there's so many different designations that you can do within the category, but as so long as your, uh, feedstock is grown in the state of New York, uh, you can use it. Uh, but over here, we're doing 100% New York grown grain. We get all of our stuff from uh, Warwick and the Black Dirt region. 
we're partnered really closely with the Black Dirt Distillery upstate, uh, and we're yeah we're we're cruising here, and it's like it's been a great transition. It's kind of exactly what I wanted going from working nightlife and having a <laughs> like make threats and beg to take a Saturday night off to yeah. now you know working during the day and being in production and kind of learning the ins and outs of these systems and making really good spirits. Jelani, you're the best man. I, I, like, you really are, dude. You, you, like the way you've approached your and they kind of like got into your career path and this industry is so cool, man. I always tell people all the time that like, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a bartender to be in the bar industry. You know, it's, no, you don't have to be a chef to be like a foodie or, you know what? It's like, there's so many different ways you can be a distiller. You can be a brewer. You can be a winemaker. You can be an author, a journalist. You know, there's so many different ways to be in the industry without being behind the stick. And I think it's a really cool, like the trajectory that you're on and that you've been on is like, it's, I don't know, man, to me, it's like, it's kind of like ideal. It's kind of perfect. Like where you're at and like where, where you've been. And like, I don't know. I just come in, like, just come in you. And like, like, it's just been personally that, great for me to you like were one of the people I looked up to throughout the entire, you know, throughout oh, my dude, I just, coming up, you were definitely one of the people that I was really proud right, to. Yeah, love birds. No, but, but no, I mean, <laughs> I, I learned from you too, yeah. you know, like that's what I'm saying. It's, we all learn from each other, but yeah, any, yeah, it's just cool. It's been, it's cool. I mean, it just, it kind of makes me sound old, which I am. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it's been really awesome seeing like essentially your whole career, like I've, I've been, I've watched you grow up kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really great, man. And congratulations on Greg Jones and all the, the fun things you've, you've done uh, in, in your career. That's, that's all I can, that's all I got to say, man. That's all I can say. Yeah, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Really appreciate you taking some time out to chat with us today uh, and love to have you back on and maybe dig a little deeper into Greg Jones. Again, uh, the first distillery in all of Manhattan since prohibition and you chose to make bourbon. That's pretty cool. And all, on a farmer's license, meaning all of the grains are, you said 100% of the grains are coming from New York, only required to be 75%, but you're going all the way. That's pretty, that's pretty fucking incredible. Um, But I think we need to wrap up this episode. Uh, Where can people follow along with your shenanigans? You got an Instagram you want to mention? I do have an Instagram, but I very rarely put anything on it. I'm kind of, (laughs) I've fallen off of the social media (laughs) train for the most part, but uh, my Instagram handle is JelaniJ11. And uh, follow along and see if I ever post anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should. You've got such great content just at your fingertips. Uh, you know, uh, shots of the still, shots of the grains going in. Well, you know, I, was, match, I was thinking today, actually, that I, yeah, I really, I'm, I'm going to make a separate Instagram for just cocktails and such because I, there's so much content that I want to put out there uh, that I, I, I got to get started on it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll jump back in. This will be, mark my words, I'm going to make a separate Instagram for cocktail stuff, distilling stuff. And everyone's going to have a really good time. Nice. That sounds great, man. We'll look forward to it. Uh, Damon, you want to take us out? Yeah, that's it for the Speakeasy this week. Check out Heritage Radio Network for many more programs like this one. Click on the beating heart to donate to the station. Keep us rocking. And check out Great Jones Distillery in New York when you're there. Um, and Jelani, dude, again, thanks so much for being on the show again. And it's always great talking with you. I can't wait to see you in person again next time I'm in New York. And uh, yeah, I, I want to see the distillery and. I mean, we're already going to be on Broadway. We might as well like pop over to like, I don't know, Finelli Cafe or something like that and have a pint and a, and a whiskey and catch up. In Make person. a day of it. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Everybody. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.